So this week's parasha, we continue the story of Exodus, the story of our slavery and redemption from Egypt. Um, so today we are going to focus on, uh, I don't know if it's known or not very known, but it's definitely not part of the Passover celebration per se. Um, you won't really find it clearly stated in the Haggadah. You won't find it clearly stated even in the stories that we tell our kids about the Exodus. It's not officially one of the plagues, etc. However, it is, it is a part of the story that is so important that it has its own unique celebration. All right, I'm not going to keep you in, in suspense. Let's go straight into it. So in this week's parasha, uh, we've, we've already had seven plagues happen in last week's parasha. In this week's parasha, Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, you are going to be smitten with the plague of locusts. And he says, fine, no problem. Well, he, didn't, he tried to negotiate out of it, but it didn't really work. He got the locusts and then the darkness. Now, God is getting ready for the grand finale. Grand finale is obviously the 10th plague, which is the death of the firstborn. And uh, once that's going to happen on the night of the 15th at midnight, right after that, that's when the Jewish people are going to be redeemed from Egypt. Pharaoh is going to let them go without any conditions. Um, and that's it. So God is preparing the Jewish people for redemption. And God tells them like this. Source number one. Speak to the entire community of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, so that's the month of Nisan, the month of Passover. So on the 10th of this month, let each one take a sheep for each extended family, a sheep for each household. Hold it for inspection until the 14th day of this month. The entire the, in, the entire community of Israel shall then slaughter their sacrifices in the afternoon. They're slaughtering it in their homes. They didn't have a temple there. They didn't have some central gathering place to do it. They didn't have an altar. So they're doing it in their homes. So every, every family is going to slaughter their sacrifice in the afternoon of the 14th. That's hours before Seder night, which that night was going to be the, the, the death of the firstborn. Um. They must take the blood and place it on the two doorposts and on the beam above the door of the houses in which they will eat the sacrifice, the lintel. Um, so typically, the way a sacrifice works in the holy temple is they would slaughter the sacrifice and collect the blood and sprinkle the blood on the altar. They didn't have an altar here. So the doorposts became the altar. So the house was the temple. The doorpost was the altar. So they were told to, to, sprinkle, to, to spread the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. Eat the sacrificial meat during that night. Roast it over fire. Eat it with matzah and bitter herbs. Matzah was part of the was part of the practice. Was part of the system of the seder even before the miracle of matzah. Even before they were sent out so quickly. So uh, that's the story. Yeah. So this is happening on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first day of Nisan, which is two weeks before Exodus. They're going out of Egypt. I mean, I'm sorry, God is speaking to Moses, preparing them for going out of Egypt. And he tells them that on the 10th day, they're going to take the sacrifice in order to inspect it for four days. And it should be tied to their bedpost. And on the 14th, they're going to sacrifice it, sprinkle its blood on uh, the doorposts, and they're going to eat it that night. Okay. You're opening up a can of worms. But it's good. It's good that you are. Okay, so, so Marvin is bringing up that 
every time that Moses spoke to Pharaoh and was discussing the idea of the Jewish people leaving, it was always, we're going to leave for three days. We're going to leave for three days and sacrifice to God. You know, that's just a three-day journey. Moses had no intention of coming back after three days, right? So the big question really is, why, why did we have to lie? Right? It's a white lie. A legal lie, huh? It's a good question. And it's a conversation that has to be had, and an entire class could be dedicated to that. So I'm just not going. I don't want to give away everything. Maybe, maybe on Tuesday we'll talk about. It. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe it's. Is it in the book? Look at I'm kidding. All right. Before we go further, I just want to say good evening to Karina and to Armando. So welcome to the class. All righty. So it seems like it was straightforward. The Jewish people should take a, a sheep. Good evening, Rabbi. Thank you. Yeah. All righty. So, um, so it seems straightforward and easy, right? Take your sheep, bring it into the house, inspect it for four days. But it wasn't so simple. In fact, inspecting the taking the sheep into the house was a very big deal. What happened? So here, the, the, uh, you know, the code of Jewish law is not a story. There's very few stories in the code of Jewish law, but there are some stories that made it in. So here's a direct quote from the code of Jewish law by the Alter Rebbe. We call the Shabbat that precedes Passover, Shabbat Hagadol, the great Shabbat, because a great miracle occurred on that day. The sheep for the Paschal sacrifice was purchased on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. As the Torah says, on the 10th of this month, each of them shall take a sheep for a family. That day was Shabbat. For the Jewish people left Egypt, the Jews left Egypt on a Thursday, as explained in section 494 of the Code of Jewish Law. And since the 15th of Nisan was a Thursday, the 10th of Nisan fell out on Shabbat. Okay. When the Jews took the sheep for their Paschal sacrifice on Shabbat, the Egyptian firstborns gathered around and asked the Jews, why are you doing this? The Jews answered, it is a Paschal sacrifice to God. Who, we, who will soon slay every firstborn of Egypt. Straight in your face, huh? <laughs> the firstborn of each family begged their parents and Pharaoh to release the Jews, but they refused. And the firstborn waged war against Pharaoh and his supporters and slew many. The verse to strike Egypt with their firstborn alludes to this. There's a verse in, uh, in Tehillim which says, that the gods struck Egypt with their firstborn. So, I, you know, when you right away when you read it, you think it's referring to the, the plague of the killing of the firstborn. But no, four days earlier, the firstborn boys, the firstborn of, of Egypt, they started a revolt. They started a civil war in Egypt. They wanted to let the Jews go. Their parents wouldn't let, and they fought with them. That was a big miracle. You know, let them fight. Let them kill each other. Right. You know, you know what happens when two enemies are fighting with each other? You know what you say? I wish them both success. Right? So I wish both of them success. The, the firstborn Egyptians and the Egyptians, they should both be successful. The rabbis established the commemoration of this miracle for future generations on the Shabbat preceding Passover and called it Shabbat Hagadol. Now, before, before I get into a certain detail here about Shabbat Hagadol, let's just go to source three just to get the, the, the drama of this story straight. The firstborns went to their fathers and said, all of Moses' predictions have come to fruition. Right? He said, the Nile is going to turn into blood. It happened. The frogs, everything happened. 
Do you not wish that we survive? Let's release these Hebrews from among us. If not, we die. Their fathers replied, even if every Egyptian dies, the Jews don't leave. Uh, sounds like, you know, <laughs> I like these guys. <laughs> over my dead body, right? Over everyone's dead body. They're not going up. What did the firstborn do? They went screaming to Pharaoh, we beg you, let this nation out. Because of them, evil will befall us. And you, Pharaoh, you are also a firstborn, right? Pharaoh refused and told his servants, go cut off their legs. What did the firstborn do then? They immediately went out to take their swords and kill their fathers. The verse says to strike Egypt with their firstborn. It doesn't say to strike Egypt's firstborn. Instead, it says with their firstborn, which alludes to the 600,000 Egyptians that were slain by the firstborn. Over half a million Egyptians were killed on that day. Serious stuff. It was a bloodbath. This uh, description comes from uh, this one comes from Medrash Tehillim. From the Medrash. But the story is brought down in the Code of Jewish Law and all of its drama. All right. So here we have an amazing thing. The Jewish people, what did they do already? They, they, there was a lot of bay going around in the Jewish quarter, right? They were, they were bringing their, their sheep inside. And the firstborn were curious. What's going on? What are you doing? And they told them, we're going to turn this into a sacrifice. And you're going to die. And as a result, the Egyptian firstborn wanted that the Jews should leave. The parents would have let civil war. Okay, that's a, that's a fair question. In other words, if they did teshuva, so to speak, they, you know, they. Right. So. That's a, that's a good question. So um, I think last week we, we, we touched upon this idea that the whole purpose of the plagues was that ultimately the Egyptians should know God, right? Right? We we're going to break them to the point where they're going to acknowledge God, have a relationship with God, etc. Now, at the end of the day, the Egyptians didn't really, in other words, when did they know God? As they were, you know, drowning in the sea. That's when they ultimately said, Hashem Atzadi, God is true, etc. So their knowledge and acknowledgement of God was important, but it's not like they were going to get scot-free from it. In other words, they, by the way, who's dying here? Not them, not the, not the Egyptian firstborn. The, the parents who didn't what? Right. In this situation, in this situation they died. Yeah. First of all, the Egyptian firstborn, they were guilty as anything. They were guilty of sin, you know? They were, they were guilty and, and they deserved to be, to be wiped out. In other words, as the firstborn, they were the first and foremost to go and, and harass the Jewish people and to make their lives miserable, etc. They were the Bechara, they, the, they were the ones that led the way. All of a sudden here, when they realize that they're the ones that are going to die right away, yeah, okay, no problem. So God had a job for them. On the contrary, they were doing God's bidding. The mountain killed 600,000 Egyptians over half, over half a million, right? Um, the, the point is, what was fascinating is that this miracle happened. From all the other 10 plagues, we don't make like to say, wow, a big miracle happened. Therefore, we're going to have a holiday. We're going to commemorate it by dedicating a certain day to remember that miracle. Specifically, this miracle, a certain day was dedicated. It's not part of the holiday. It's not part of Pesach. It's always the Shabbos before Pesach. Now, you can ask a very simple question. We know the date that it happened, the 10th of Nisan. In fact, the date that it happened 
is more relevant to the story. Because what does it say in the Torah? On the 10th of Nisan, you should take the sheep and bring them into your home. The whole story happened as a res- it snowballed from the fact that they took the sheep into their homes. The Torah doesn't say it was Shabbos, by the way. The Torah, doesn't say it. The Torah says it was the 10th of Nisan. So it actually makes more sense that every year on the 10th of Nisan, we should have, I don't know, uh, Egyptian Civil War Day or something. I don't know. Okay. It's something, something to remember to remember that, uh, that great miracle. Instead, the, the sages did not dedicate it on the 10th of Nisan. They decided it's going to be on the Shabbos before Pesach, which could be as early as the 8th of Nisan. 8, 9, 10. It could be the day before Pesach. It could be all over the place. right? So what's the deal? Why was it not um, officially enacted or dedicated on the 10th of Nisan instead it was, it was on Shabbos. So listen to this. A very important Jewish person died on the 10th of Nisan. Have any, any guess? Just throw mm-hmm. a name out there. One of the most important Jewish people. Thank you. One of the most important Jewish people. It was a woman. It was a woman. Mm-hmm. Not her, Miriam, exactly. Miriam, who was the sister of Meshanar, Miriam died, she passed away on the 10th of Nisan. It's a big deal. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, there are people that fast on that day. Her death is a big deal. When she died, the water stopped. Right? The water stopped flowing from the rock. That had to be a whole thing in order to bring it back. So our sages did not want to dedicate a holiday a celebration specifically on the anniversary of her passing. So they found the next best anniversary, which is the day of the week. When did this happen? The Shabbos before Passover, the Shabbos before Exodus. So therefore, the Shabbos before Passover is always the day that we commemorate this miracle, even though the Shabbos before Passover could be later or earlier, it could be a different date. It could be the 10th, but if it's the 10th, and it's on Shabbos, we wouldn't fast anyway, because it's Shabbos, right? So, so therefore, in order to be safe, in order not to interfere with the commemoration of her passing, and also not to interfere with the joy of commemorating this uh, great miracle, so it was dedicated that it should be on Shabbos, the Shabbos before. That's Shabbat HaGadu. But what do we see from here? That there's something special and unique with this miracle. That makes it different from all of the miracles that happened uh, during Exodus. To the point that we need to have a special celebration just for this. In fact, we do something special in honor of that on Shabbat HaGadol. After Mincha, after the afternoon prayer, we recite the Haggadah. If you look in the Siddur, not that we don't say Kiddush, we don't have four cups of wine and matzah and stuff like that, but the, and the, the part that begins, like a paragraph after the Manishtana, the story that we say, the Seder night, we recite religiously on Shabbat Haggadah. We have like a mini Seder, a mini Haggadah situation. So it's a serious business. It's a real celebration. So what's the deal? So let's go to page five. This is the Rebbe's Sikha. It's from 1971. And you guessed that the Rebbe spoke about this on Shabbat Haggadah. Not, not in Prashad Bo, but on Shabbat Haggadah. The unique feature of the great miracle that occurred on the Shabbos before Passover is that the killing of the Egyptians was performed by the firstborn Egyptians themselves, as the verse states, to strike Egypt with their firstborn. It is considered an exceptional miracle because other miracles occur 
through the intervention of an external force. For example, the plague of the firstborns occurred when God struck all the firstborns in the land of Egypt. So God is an external force coming and killing them. Similarly, regarding the miracle of Purim, Haman's decree was thwarted not by Haman himself, but by Mordechai and Esther, operating through the natural guise of Esther requesting it from Ahasuerus. The same is true regarding Hanukkah. When Ahasuerus is defeated the Greek Empire, this is true in, more, in many more cases in the battle between nations where one rises, the other one falls. In other words, typically it's us versus them, and our side beats the other side up somehow, right? That's usually the miracle. We're the good guys. Our side is the good guys, you know, doing something to the bad guys. The miracle of Shabbat HaGadol, however, occurred through the Egyptians themselves. And he uses a very interesting analogy from the Talmud. The handle of the axe comes from the forest itself. How do you chop down trees? With an axe. What, what, how do you hold the axe? The handle is the wood, right? So, so what's chopping down the tree? The tree itself. The wood comes from the tree, and the tree itself is chopping down the tree. The firstborns, the choicest and most powerful people in Egypt, were the ones who struck Egypt. This represents the absolute abrogation of the natural order, and it is therefore termed a great miracle. Many miracles are, they transcend nature, right? But here, it's even more than that. The natural way for a miracle to happen, the normal way is the good guys beat up the bad guys. The good side is overcoming the bad side. That the bad side itself should self-destruct, that's, that's, that's completely wild. That's a whole different ballgame. It, it's, it's not about changing nature. It, it's about the enemy itself doing the miracle. In other words, it's a whole different type of miracle. It defies logic on a much higher level. Uh, so here brings the, the source of this idea. And this is what people say from and within the forest comes the axe to it as the handle for the axe that chops the tree is from the forest itself. So here we see a beautiful illustration of that. The Egyptians themselves are killing themselves. So now here comes, so great, beautiful story. Why did that happen? The Rebbe, the Rebbe, the Rebbe you know, touches upon a, a concept that it's, it's actually a, a powerful idea. There's an axiom. There's a certain truth. Everything happens because of us. In other words, if something great happened to you, you must have done something good. However, let, let's continue here on the, Rebbe, the Rebbe's words. However, everything in this world is affected by the divine service of the Jewish people. Every godly intervention is the result of our behavior in this world. Even a miracle which transcends our abilities and thus seems unrelated to our divine service requires some form of related action on our part. This concept is expressed in the teaching that God's presence only rests, dwells, in a perfect place. In other words, if you want to have a certain divine intervention, you have to do something to be deserving of it. If you want God's presence to be felt, you have to be the one to prepare. A very simple example, the Mishka, right? 
If we wanted to have God's presence in our midst, we had to create a, a, a sanctuary for it, right? A sanctuary specific. So anytime that you want to invite God into your life, you have to prepare that sanctuary for it. Every time that you want a miracle there, you have to do something to prepare for that miracle. It is therefore clear that the great miracle of the Shabbat before Pesach must also have been preceded by some form of human endeavor. Again, not that we have to perform a miracle in order for God to do miracles. We don't do miracles, right? We serve God. We do good things. We behave in a certain way. That behavior provides the context in which God's revelation can be felt, in where God's miracle can do its thing. Um, just a little bit more about this idea. Let's go to source number five. It's from a different sikha. Although a gift comes solely through the desire of the giver, and the receiver undertakes no commitment in the transaction, right? That's the difference between a, an, uh, you know, between an acquisition and a gift, right? If you're acquiring something, you give money. There's something that you have to give, you know, you don't just get it for free. But a gift means that the giver is giving. Nonetheless, as our sages say, if he, the giver, had not derived some pleasure from the recipient, he would not have given the gift. Ultimately, the gift is a result of the receiver's actions. A gift is only given to someone who is worthy of it. You don't just give out gifts randomly, right? You give to family, you give to someone that did something nice to you, whatever, something. You don't just walk out and randomly give a gift. A dollar you give randomly, right? Random acts of kindness. Randomly, okay, no problem, I give that. But a gift, your, your, your golden watch, you're not giving that to a stranger on the street, right? It's just not happening. Unless your golden watch is a dollar. You know, for you, it's only a dollar, so you give it out. But anyway, it is, however, still so. If I did something for it, if I was nice, I held the door open, I, you know, did something, so that means I deserve it, but it's still a gift. It is, however, still called a gift, an unearned object. The recipient only caused pleasure to his friend, causing by extension the giving of the gift. He didn't compel the gift, nor can he demand it in return for his deeds. It is up to the goodwill of the other individual. In other words, the gift does not directly correlate to the endeavors of the recipient, but the recipient had to do something. There has to be something that should trigger this gift. The same thing is true with regard to this miracle of Shabbat HaGadol. There must have been something that the Jewish people did that triggered such a tremendous miracle. The miracle that the Egyptians are killing each other. There's civil war by them. So here comes the, the, the real deal. Why did the Jewish people have to take a sheep and schlep it into their house? What was What's the deal here? Barbecue, exactly. But to do barbecue, you don't have to have the sheep by your bedside for four days. You can buy it that day, it's fresh. It makes no difference if you bought it four days before that day. Huh? Look, I mean, I won't argue with you. It is true. It's a good barbecue and all of that. It's fine. But let's think from a while. We think God is the one that wants us to have the barbecue. And therefore, he tells us to bring it in. There was obviously something deeper here. And, oh, that's the preparation for Exodus. Oh, have a good barbecue. Before you're going on a trip, let's give you a good barbecue in Egypt. Rob, we, we were making all the noise and everything in order to make it openly that we were doing that, not secretly. We were putting the, the, the sheep 
they were asking us, they were, we were openly saying that we were going to prepare it and that we were going to kill the Egyptians. And also make it as a barbecue instead of another way of cooking. It was the smoke. It was going to be everybody will notice that we were cooking it. Killing uh -huh. them and killing them. Right. So, so in other words, there was something specific that was meant to happen. It was, it was first of all, as, as Mauricio said, it was meant to be a big deal. Everyone should know about it. It shouldn't be secret. It shouldn't be, oh, you rush to the butchery and you get a little bit of uh, meat and you put on the barbecue. It was supposed to be a big, big thing. And what could be a bigger core, a, a bigger, uh, you know, balagan that every family brings a sheep into the house and it's a whole to do, right? So it's a big deal. Why was it so important that it should be so public? Because the Jewish people in Egypt had sunk into a very, very low place. They were basically idolaters. We'll see soon one of the one of the a quote from a, from a holy source, which states that at that point, spiritually speaking, the Jewish people were on the same level as the Egyptians. I mean, they weren't sadists like the Egyptians, but they were serving idols just like them. They were idolaters just like them. And so God wanted to prepare the Jewish people to give them a reason why they should be saved. He had to get them away from idolatry. He had to put them through a process. How is he going to do that? The sheep is the deity of the, of the, of the Egyptians. Why? Sheep is, um, is the, it's the sign, Arius? 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 Yeah, so the spring, Aries, right? So in the spring, the month of Nisan, which is the beginning of the spring, so in the zodiac, the sign of it is Aries, which is a sheep. The Egyptians, it's actually fascinating. The Arab explains this in a, in a letter, in a public letter. The, so the spring is a time when nature is starting to blossom. After the, the dead of winter, now nature is coming to life. Right? The, the trees are, are blossoming, the buds are out, and it's a beautiful, the world is singing. The Egyptians, they worshipped nature. To them, nature was above all else, right? Where, where did they get their nutrition from? Where did they get their nourishment? Their, 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 their water came from the Nile. The Nile would rise and it flooded the entire... To them, nature was above all else. So they, they served, they, their deity was Aries. Their, their deity was the sheep. To them, that was above everything. That's why that was the, that was the icon for their, for their deities. So the Jews are taking the sheep and they're taking it into their homes. They say, what, what are you doing with the sheep? What are you doing with our gods? And they tell them, we're going to kill these gods. Now, the Jews also, a day before, were also serving the sheep where they were serving nature. But what are they doing by taking the sheep and pulling it into their home with the intention of killing this thing? The point that nature is not God. Nature is not above all else. There's something above nature. There's something in control of Aries. There's something in control of all of this. Let's read in the Rebbe's words. The answer to this is given by the Alter Rebbe in his Code of Jewish Law. He describes how the Jews purchased the sheep for the Paschal sacrifice on Shabbat, the 10th of the month. And when the firstborn Egyptians confronted the Jews and asked them why they were taking sheep, the Jews replied that they were doing so in observance of God's command to take a sheep and slaughter it as a Paschal offering. As explained in the commentaries, sheep were worshipped as a god in Egypt, and this was a commandment for the Jews to abandon idol worship. Essentially, the Jews were saying outright, I am going to slaughter my idol, which is your idol as well. Let's hear how the Zohar describes this. 
describes the fact that the Jewish people at the time of Exodus, they were, they were in a very low place. When the Jews approached the water, talking about the splitting of the sea, so before the sea split, and God wanted to split the Red Sea, the angel that ministered over Egypt came to God and requested justice. He said, Master of the world, why do you wish to punish Egypt to split the sea for the Jews? They're all guilty. Your ways are with justice and truth. The, the Egyptians serve idols and the Jews serve idols. The Egyptians commit improper marital relations and the Jews also commit improper marital relations. The Egyptians commit murder and the Jews also commit murder. They're all the same. But then something happened. The carbon Pesach, the Paschal Lamb. What happened here? Let's look at source seven. Moses, Moses summoned the, the elders of Israel and said to them, Mishchu, draw forth the people and get yourselves cheap for your families so that you will be able to slaughter the Paschal offering. The word Mishchu, so let's see, the Medrash translates that, draw forth the people and get yourselves cheap. Rabbi Yossi of, Gal of the Galilee explained, draw forth from idol worship, in other words, move away from idolatry and connect yourselves to God's commandments. The whole theme of carbon Pesach of the Paschal Lamb was to make the statement, I do not serve idols, period. I'm gone. And so it's over, right? It's like an addict taking the bottle and throwing it away. I'm never going to have alcohol. But that's it. I'm done. Right? Now here comes a, a very powerful concept. There's a, there, there, uh, on, the, on the code of Jewish law, there was a great halachist. His name was Rabbi Yol of uh, Circus. Uh, he lived 17th century, approximately. And he asked a very simple question. He said, is this the first time the Jews had barbecue in Egypt? It's not. It's not the first time the Jews had barbecue in Egypt. In fact, in fact, the Israelites going all the way back to the times of Yosef, they ate meat. It's clearly in the story when the brothers came to eat lunch with Yosef, they could not eat together with the Egyptians because the Egyptians would not eat together with them because the Egyptians were vegetarians, they were vegans, and the, and the Israelites and, and you know the Canaan they were they were eating meat. They ate meat all the time. This wasn't the first time they were having a barbecue. So what happened? What happened this time? Listen to this. Source number eight. Every Jew took a sheep as a paschal offering and tied it to their bedposts. The Egyptians asked them, "What is this about?" And they responded, "The slaughter for a paschal offering upon God's command." The Egyptians watched helplessly as their God their God was being prepared for slaughter. So. The Bach famously asks, the Jews ate meat throughout their time in Egypt. As we find that Moshe said to Pharaoh, we will go with our sheep and our cattle. We will go with our sheep. And, you know, the Jews had sheep and why did they have sheep and cattle? They weren't eating meat. Of course they had, they, they ate meat. That's why they had sheep and cattle. This implies that Jews owned animals and would slaughter and eat them. They obviously couldn't eat meat together with the Egyptians because the Egyptians could not eat bread together with the Jews. They considered it an abomination. But the Jews themselves consumed meat while they lived in the Egyptian region of Goshen, not just during the lifetime of Joseph, but throughout the 210 years of slavery in Egypt. The Egyptians were fully aware of this. What then was unique about Shabbat HaGadol when the Jews said that they were going to slaughter a sheep? Why did this silence the Egyptians? The answer is, that throughout their time in Egypt, the Jews explained their meat consumption by saying they liked meat. Why eating meat? I like meat. But Shabbat HaGadol, they were on such a level 
that they were unashamed and unafraid to say clearly, I am going to slaughter your idol. In other words, like this. You know, sometimes, sometimes someone offers you food and you say, no, no, it's fine. I'm, I'm on a diet. It's one way to say it. Another way to say, no, no, no. I thank you for offering, but I'm Jewish and I keep kosher. I can't eat that. What's the difference? The first way, you're very polite, under the radar. No one knows anything different. They offered you a non-kosher sandwich. You said, I'm on a diet. Okay, I'm a diet. No problem. I'm allergic to bread. Whatever. <laughs> you know, I've, I've got an issue. No problem. When you say, I'm Jewish, and I keep kosher, I can't eat that, that's heavy. You just made a big statement. What you said was basically that there's something that separates me from you. I still respect you, we're still, but I can't have it, not because I don't like to eat that food, because I prefer other food, because whatever. No, I, I'm Jewish, that's why I can't have it. When the Jews ate meat throughout the time that they were in Egypt, they were just saying, well, we like meat, okay, well, fine, it happens to be our God, but they like to have meat, fine, no problem, eat your meat. Even though it's our God, eh, fine. But this time the Jew says, I don't like meat, I'm going to kill your God. God told me to do this. I'm not doing it because I like asado, because I like barbecue. That's not, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm doing this because my God told me to kill your God. Oh, doesn't that sound great? But that's what happened here. So, so before that, so they also worship God. They and worship me and they ate right, their God. So, but kind of weird, huh? Well, Idolatry well, is weird. Don't try to explain it. The whole idolatry business is weird. Now, now you're convinced? <laughs> now you're convinced? <laughs> then don't become a heathen. There's nothing to find there. Yes, but it would make sense then to say that the next day on the 10th, it was very easy for them to say because they really knew that there wasn't a God. In other words, it doesn't really mean me. same time because of the environment they're in maybe what i'm saying is deep seated in there they probably that's true that's true in other words even though god said do it you do it but it was probably just much easier to do because they didn't really however there's one thing to not believe that it's a god and be willing to go and slaughter it in order to kill that god there's another thing to announce it in front of people that can kill you on the spot they were still slaves they couldn't leave yet. They, they couldn't leave, right? So they're, they're making a massive statement, right? They were able to do so because they were slaughtering their own idolatrous belief. In other words, I mean, you're, you're, you're contending that they never really believed in those idols in the first place, which is true. But they're at least coming to terms and they were facing that truth in a way that I'm not serving this idol. Because they were separating themselves from idolatry, Therefore, they were capable of going in the Egyptians' face and tell them, we are going to kill this, your God. We are going to do this because our God is telling us to kill this God, which is a very, which is, which is a very powerful statement of Jewish pride, right? They were able to go and transcend their own justified inhibitions. There was a justified inhibition not to go and, and, uh, and, and, and advertise that we're going to slaughter their gods. In fact, I'll bring to your attention in last week's parasha at one point, I think it was after the the the, the 
the plague of the wild beasts. So Pharaoh calls Moses and he wants to negotiate with him. What's his negotiate? What's his negotiating chip? He says, I have no problem. Go and serve God, but do it here. Why do you have to go to the desert? In fact, Egypt is nicer than the desert. Do it over here. So what does Meshach Ma- Abedu respond? He says, we're going to be slaughtering sheep and cattle and things like that. We can go and slaughter the God of the Egyptians as a sacrifice to our God, and they're not going to stone us. And Pharaoh accepted that. He's like, yeah, we will stone you. In other words, it's a, it's a real fear. You can't just go and slaughter it. If you want to slaughter the sheep in order to eat it, fine, no problem. You like meat? Thank you for the compliment. But to go and slaughter it, not in order to eat it. You're slaughtering it as a sacrifice to a god. They're going to stone them to death. It was an act of provocation. Well, yeah, it's a provocation. It was a direct provocation. Exactly, a direct provocation uh, to, to something that, 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 means, that means so much to the Egyptians. So Moses and Pharaoh both agreed that killing sheep for divine purpose, for serving God, is, is warrant for provocation, right? And in fact, Pharaoh, like he dropped that offer because he realized he's going to have a riot on his hands. Comes several months later, and here the Jews are doing exactly that. Exactly this action that Moses had brought to Pharaoh's attention, and they both agreed that, that would cause a riot in Egypt, and there would be a bloodbath against the Jews for doing such a thing. The Jews had the ability to stand up to the Egyptians and say, we are going to slaughter your God. And what happened? Was there a bloodbath against the Jews? That's what was supposed to happen. According to all statistics, according to all of the, anyone that understood the two nations, anyone that understood the culture, anyone that understood what was going on at the time, would have told you, if Jews are going to go and take sheep and say we're slaughtering a sacrifice to the God of the Hebrews, there's going to be a wrong. That's it. 600,000 Jews are going to be killed. Without question. And what happened then? The Jews weren't killed. Who was killed? The Egyptians killed the Egyptians. A civil war broke out by the Egyptians and they killed each other. Let's continue. The Jews could have responded ambiguously like diplomats speak. And they could have simply remained silent and allowed the Egyptians to interpret their actions as they wished. Right? Isn't that the better thing to do? Just don't say anything. Why are you taking it? Whatever. I want him as a pet. <laughs> Whatever. Be, be quiet. But the Jews were unashamed and unafraid and stated clearly that they are going to fulfill God's command to abandon idol worship and slaughter the Paschal sacrifice, slaughtering the God of Egypt. They did so even though they were still in Egypt, knowing that they still had to wait a few days until the great miracle of Egypt being struck with its firstborns. This conduct is what caused the great miracle of striking the Egyptians through their firstborn on the Shabbat before Pesach, the Shabbat from which all the days of the following week are blessed, including the day of the actual exodus from Egypt. So in other words, this miracle came as a result of this show of pride, this Jewish pride that the Jewish people had, which was a type of Jewish pride, which if, if you ask any rational person, it doesn't make any sense. First of all, you you could, you could be completely religious and completely doing what God, you could be fully within the realm of, of behaving in accordance with God's wishes without provoking the Egyptians, without telling it to them in their face. And they did. They were unashamed of what they were doing. They said it clearly. Ah, you're willing to transcend all of those normal, natural inhibitions that you have to try to keep yourself safe. 
God is going to make a miracle that completely breaks the, the format, completely goes against all logic of miracles itself. I mean, first of all, this can be something that's very hard to like relate to. I was like going danger my life in order that other people should know that I'm Jewish. Why is it so important? There's a story told about the Rebbe that uh, uh, for, for a while, for many, many months, he lived in Vichy, Vichy, France, right? Uh, under, under the Vichy government. So at one point, the police were going around and taking a, a census of what religion are all of the people in the city. What, what religion are they? You know, what, what, what religion are they? For what reason? Obviously, because they wanted to send over the, they needed to send over the list to the to the Nazis. So the Rebbe and the Rebbetzin were not home when the officials came around. When they came home, one of the neighbors told them that the officials came to take the census to find out everyone's religious. So we answered for you. What did you say? So we answered that you're Orthodox. Not Jewish. Orthodox. Smart neighbor, right? When the Rebbe heard this, he walked out of the apartment, went over to the government building, the headquarters, or the police headquarters. They said, put in the census, Schneerson, Jewish Orthodox. The Rebbe did not want that on any paper there should be any, that anyone in the world should look at his name and what is his religion and think that it could be Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, this Orthodox, that Orthodox, Jewish Orthodox. There's no halacha in Torah that says you have to do that. You have to go and sacrifice your life, put your life on, in danger in order that no one in the world should think for a moment that you're not Jewish. But to the Rebbe, Jewish pride was paramount, even if it meant risking his life. He was going to go and make sure that it, next to his name, anyone, even some low-life Nazi that looks at his name should see Jewish Orthodox, Jewish, next to his name. I, I think there are, there are several lessons that we could take from, from this uh, concept here. First of all, what's interesting is, is that this, this was the prelude to the Exodus, which is the birth of the Jewish people. Jewish pride is part and parcel of Jewish identity. Yes, you could be Jewish without anyone knowing that you're Jewish, but it's part of the Jewish DNA to uh, project it, okay, to be out there. That doesn't mean that you have to be loud. That doesn't mean that you have to make noise. What it means is that anyone that interacts with you, sees you, speaks with you, has an they should get the impression that you're a Jew. You have to them, oh, hi, my name is Levy and I'm Jewish. See, I'm very lucky. I say, hi, they already know they're looking at a Jew. That's it. There's no, there's no way of hiding it. That's it, right? Um, so like, for example, so wearing a kippah, so that's very like identifiably Jewish. But sometimes people are in certain places where they can't wear a yarmulke, right? So they'll wear a different hat. So let's say someone comes up and says, why are you wearing a hat? Because ah, my head is cold. My head is cold, so that's why I'm wearing a hat. No, be proud. No, I'm wearing a hat because as a Jew, I have to cover my head. To cover my head. Um, I mean, Velvo Green is always a great go-to guy for these for these types of stories. But he, he says the story that you know he was going on. His, he, he was a, a big professor, was working for NASA, and um, at one point he decided he's going to start wearing a kippah full time. So he's, that's that's part part of his thing. 
Velvel Green, Professor Green, Velvel Green. We spoke about him many times. He, said, he was a story with the hot dog stand. Anyway, so um, two weeks later, he had to give a, a speech or a lecture in a, in a campus or something. He had to give a lecture. It was a very high profile lecture. And he was fighting with himself. Should he keep his keep on? Should he not? This is what I do. This is who I am. So he gets up there with his keep It was the first time he was giving a lecture with his Yamakon. And he gives the entire lecture. Afterwards, there was question and answer. And the final question, they asked him, but like with a funny uh, rhyme or a poem or something, like in a way that was kind of, was making fun of him, basically asked him, what's that beanie on your head? What are you wearing on your head? And it was it was communicated in a way of, a scoffing way. Like a, it was, you know, this is the 70s, 60s, you know. Anyway, so... Uh, like he stops for a moment. He says, well, I'm a Jew. And my rabbi explained to me that this you know, cap that's on my head is called a yarmulke. Yarmulke comes from two Aramaic words, yare malka, fear of the king above. And the reason why we wear this hat is in order to always remember that God is above us. No matter how great we may be, how much, how much change we're bringing to the world, etc., there's always super being, a superpower that's above us. That sees everything we does. It's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. But we are held accountable to this power. So when he finished saying that, he got a standing ovation. Here's a scientist, a professor. He's you know discovering who knows what in outer space, and he believes in a god, believes in a higher power, a higher threat, and he got a standing ovation. He didn't get a standing ovation for his discoveries and for all of the smart things he had to say. By being proud of who he was, without being apologetic about it, without being ambiguous and saying, oh, no, it is it. no, this is what I'm doing. This is what I need to do. Sometimes when people have to pray, so it's very typical. They would go to the, to the public phone booth and put the phone to their ear and they'll, they'll say their prayers. Standing and saying their prayers. Right? No one should realize that they're saying words. What's wrong? Go to the, go to the wall, take out a sitter, put on your jacket and pray. And so someone's going to see, so what? You know how many times I'm walking to the airport and I see Muslims, they have their mat, their prayer mat, and they're praying there. And you know what? Good for them. Very good. I'm going to wear my tefillin and my talus, and they're going to pray in their mat. That's the way it should be. In other words, it's not enough for us to be Jews in our hearts or Jews in our actions and Jews in our homes or within our communities. That Judaism has to be a proud Judaism. Again, it doesn't mean we have to always run around and say, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew. You don't have to put a, you don't have to put a sign on your shirt, I'm a Jew. There's plenty that you could do within Jewish observance that automatically when you're walking around, you're going to see this is a Jew. This is a Jewish person. Also, it, it brings a tremendous amount of obligation and, and responsibility to a person that if when they're walking around, a person can always identify to what people they belong to, you got to make sure that uh, the next words are, oh, so beautiful it's so wonderful how they're behaving it, uh, you know I, I, I would love for my children to be like those kids I would love to behave in such a way I would love to associate with such people as, as well etc but the point that the Rebbe is making here is that the, the genesis of our nation the birth of our nation came at the, the, right, the very beginning of the process of our birth was the miracle of the Egyptian firstborn killing their own people which was a tremendous miracle as we illustrated and that came as a result of the Jewish people transcending their own genuine and justified inhibitions and going from being, uh, how do you say, closet Jews to being proud and open Jews. 
And that took a lot. It took a lot for the Jewish people to do that. And when they were able to do it, that's when everything started to happen. That's when the process of redemption was able to happen, starting with the tremendous miracle that instead of a bloodbath destroying the Jewish people, which Moses and Pharaoh agreed that's what would happen, instead it was a civil war and a bloodbath on the Egyptian side with 600,000 Egyptians being killed. And with that, we're, we're done with today's class. Any, any questions or comments? In person. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome, Thank man. Thank you. Interesting.